1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to have the author of a really interesting and I think quite important book published by Oxford University Press titled Making Empire, Ireland, Imperialism and the Early Modern World. This book starts from a pretty straightforward premise that Ireland was England's oldest colony. But, what does that actually mean? How did the English Empire function in early modern Ireland? How did this change over time? What participation did Irish people have in English Empire more broadly? There's a whole bunch to get into. So I'm thrilled to have on the podcast and the author of the book, Dr. Jane Allmire, to tell us all about it. Jane, thank you so much for being here.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure, Miranda. I'm delighted to be with you.
1: Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
0: Of course. So my name is uh, Jane Olmeyer. I'm Professor of Modern History at Trinity College in Dublin, uh, and I've taught in Trinity now for the last 20 years, and before that, taught in the United States, the United Kingdom. Um, but I grew up in Belfast during the Troubles, um, and I was always very conscious of Ireland having this anomalous position of being, if you won't, if you want, both colonial and post-colonial. So I've been interested in issues of empire basically my entire life. And then my doctoral work, um, I really began to explore it. So I've been working on Ireland and empire now for the better part of 30 years at Miranda. But the trigger for writing this book was an invitation to deliver the James Ford lectures. Now, the Ford lectures um, are... Oxford University. Um, they're, they're hugely prestigious. I think I'm the second person um, based at an Irish university ever to be invited to deliver them. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what am I going to talk about? And it was really as I was thinking about the Fords that I thought, i you know, I've always been fascinated by Ireland and empire and uh, Ireland as, if you want, colony and the Irish as imperialists. And I thought this was a great opportunity to bring together research I've been doing over the last three decades, but also then really reflecting on what all of this means in the 21st century. So that's why I came to write this book. And then having delivered the lectures in 2021, they were actually delivered online and they're still on the RTE website. So RTE is the Irish broadcaster. They kindly are still hosting the lectures, but I thought, well, let's now turn them into a book. And i obviously delighted that, that Oxford has has published them.
1: Brilliant. Thank you for giving us that sort of foundation um, way into the book and your interest in it. Um, Obviously, as you've kind of hinted at, and I mentioned as well, Ireland's history as a colony, as being involved in empire, spans quite a long period of time. So what time period do you focus on in the book? And how did you come to this decision? Well, Ireland is England's oldest
0: colony. Um, uh, England first conquered Ireland in the 12th century, um, but and there were a number of waves, if you want, of English um, uh, imperialism in Ireland. Where I pick the story up really is uh, from the onset of the Protestant Reformation in, in the 1530s and particularly in the later uh, 16th century when we see, um, if you want, this imperial agenda in Ireland reaching new heights with the plantations, firstly the plantations of Munster and then after the accession of King James VI and First, Sixth of Scotland, First of uh, Ireland, uh, uh, England and, and, and Wales. Um, we see uh, uh, imperialism, in a sense, uh, uh, take a completely new, reach a whole whole new level. So I really wanted to focus on that late 16th century through the 17th century into the early 18th century. And that coincides, if you want, with um, what we know as the first uh, 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 English Empire or British Empire. Um, And um, However, I'm also very interested in the continuities over time. So in one chapter, chapter five, I actually then take this conversation right through to the 20th century, where I I look particularly at Ireland's relationship with India. because. I think there's huge continuities across time. And because we as historians focus on a particular place or a particular uh, time frame, we often miss the very obvious uh, connections across time and place. And I was keen to explore that, however superficially in this book. Now, somebody else can come along and write volume two, but at least I have sort of been suggestive here in pointing to the continuities um, across time.
1: Hmm. No, that's very helpful to do um, and useful as well to uh, point our attention to perhaps a time period that we don't think of as often in this context. So now that we've clarified a bit about the time period, can we do the same for terminology, for example, terms of empire, imperialism, colony and colonisation?
0: Yeah, nomenclature is always slippery, um, Miranda. So I think it is important just to be very clear about what we mean. And obviously people um, uh, who lived in the early modern period, sometimes they use the language of imperialism and uh, uh, colonization. um, uh, But other times they they don't, or, or they you know. So so, but when it comes to imperialism, for me, imperialism in the early modern period, the usage in the early modern period is actually very similar to how we understand it today. So someone like someone like Edward Said wrote a hugely important book, Cultural Imperialism, and he defined imperialism simply as the process or policy of establishing or maintaining an empire. Um, when an empire comprises extensive territories or sets of territories under the control of a single ruler. Uh, and that would be a widely accepted definition. And people like historians like John Darwin would concur or Jürgen Osterhamel. So um, these are, are all historians, if you want, of, of the empire in, in the modern period, but I think that does work very well for early uh, uh, modernity. Where it becomes slightly more complicated. Is I think colony is another word where it's used in the early modern period, very much as it is today. But in the early modern period, people will use the word to plant uh, and plantation. Um, uh, And they'll go between colonization and plantation, whereas today we wouldn't use that word as as much. Um, The other word we see a lot of use of is the word to civilize or to improve. Um, And when um, uh, contemporaries in the early modern period use that, that really is explaining, if you want what we would today call anglicisation. In other words, how Ireland was made English. Um, uh, So the the word anglicisation is a product of a much later period. Um, uh, So they, as I say, they use this word to civilise. So language matters. And um, I I try to be very precise in how I use uh, language because the one thing I don't want to do is muddy sometimes complicated waters uh, uh, even uh, uh, further. Um, uh, Mm -hmm. And and where possible, I'll always use the language that was used at the time, uh, the language of the 17th Mm -hmm. century.
1: And regardless, clarifying when you use the language, which version we're using and why, so that, as you said, we don't muddy the waters even further. Mm -hmm. Um, Given this foundation now with the terminology, with the time period, I'd love to start off um, talking a bit about these continuities that you trace between uh, the early modern period and the present day. I think we'll probably then go back into the early modern period itself. But to start off with, um, I wonder if you can tell us a bit about the play called Making History and what we might learn about all of these topics of empire, imperialism and colony by comparing sort of the time period that the play is about versus the time period of when it was actually performed versus what it might be like to think about now? So when I
0: was invited to give the Ford Lectures, I had a tremendous sort of oh my goodness, how am I going to actually present um, the the, the lectures? I needed something to help me hold them together and to create, if you want, a satisfying, coherent narrative. And so I turned to a wonderful play by a wonderful Irish playwright called Brian Friel. And Brian Friel had written a a play called Making History, which is about the great Irish nationalist hero, a man called Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone. Um, But Brian Friel had, if you want, uh, debunked the myth of Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone, and making history like um, Brian Friel's other plays, especially Translations, which would be another play that I do come to in the book a little bit. Um, It's a play about identity. It's a play about language. Um, It's a play about uh, 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 what it means to be Irish. So it was um, uh, very relevant, both the topic, but also let's remember that Brian Friel wrote that play in the 1980s. He wrote it at the height of the Troubles. Um, uh, The Troubles were, of course, very much a colonial war where um, uh, uh, Britain was fighting um, uh, Irish nationalists, Irish republicans. the war began in 1968 and lasted 30 years until we had the conclusion of good friday agreement in 1998 so uh, uh, making history was published at the very height of the troubles when actually it wasn't clear that there was any way out to it was such a, a dreadful period. I grew up in Belfast during this period. And, and um, it, it, you know, the warfare just seemed it, there was going to never be peace. There would be no solution to it. And what Brian Friel was trying to do in making history, along with his other plays, and it wasn't just Brian Friel, by the way, Seamus Heaney would be another very important uh, writer, who was trying to create a fifth province of the mind. There are, of course, four provinces in Ireland, and this was a fifth province of the mind where all communities could come uh, together and, f- uh, in a sense, find a shared... Uh, future and and present. So, you know, this was really important um, uh, visionary uh, uh, work that Friel and, as I say, others were undertaking at a very, very dark moment in Irish history. But what Brian Friel's play gave me was a way of approaching these extremely thorny and very sensitive uh, discussions around uh, empire um, uh, and and around identity um, in um, the Ireland of the 21st century. Because as we all know, uh, around the world, we see so many conflicts, whether it's in uh, the Ukraine or the Middle East, that are very much, if you want, legacies of empire. Well, we had that own experience ourselves in Ireland. Um, And, the question then is how do we actually have discussions around empire that don't turn into, you know, toxic um, uh, screaming matches. And I, I, so I thought, well, you know let's try and tell that story let's go back to the beginning for me it was very much the early modern period and let's actually look at the evidence um uh, and uh, uh, this is where you know the historian it's to me it's 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 about empirical evidence and then let's tell that story obviously um uh, based on uh, uh, on the evidence and and what Friel allowed me to do then was to in a sense make the history of the early modern period, more relevant to today, um, but also helping explain, I think, a little bit better how Ireland had emerged out of its own period of colonial uh, uh, warfare. Now, obviously, Ireland is still um, a divided country and partition. Uh, whether it's in India and Pakistan, or in Gaza and Israel, uh, is a, a very difficult um, uh, thing for any country to negotiate. But at least we have found a way of sharing uh, the, the island. And that's, I suppose, what Friel was hoping for uh, when he wrote that play. And that now, as I say, is something that is being realised. Although I would never take that for granted, Miranda. I think Brexit dealt a body blow to English Anglo-Irish relations, and and we're still sort of reeling from that. um, Given what's going on or not going on in Stormont, but also uh, English nationalism, extreme English nationalism, and this nostalgia for you know to recreate the British Empire uh, that has dominated uh, English politics has been extremely you know destructive. um, uh, I think uh, 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 across these islands, and then we just have to look at the very toxic. Uh, discussions that are going on uh, in the United States and that's compounded then by other movements uh, the statues must fall um uh, black lives matter you know there's a lot of um uh, uh tension uh, uh in the uh, uh, uh you know at the moment around issues of empire and i hope that this contribution or my book is 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 a constructive contribution about how We actually, you know, have uh, informed and very respectful uh, conversations because until we actually can deal with our own past, uh, we'll never uh, be able to uh, engage in the present and and build a a future, uh, you know, a shared future. So, so I'm I'm probably not being as articulate as I would like to, but I found the play extraordinarily um, helpful. In, in allowing me to negotiate all of that.
1: Mm, no, what what a wonderful way, you know, going to look for something to make this, bring this all together um, and finding something so useful. So thank you for starting us off um, with that. And I think kind of then following your lead, right, we we do need to go back into history. We need to look at what the facts were. So can we look at what, as you said, we would now call the Anglicization process, even if it was using terms more like civilized at the time, what did this actually look like in the early modern period in Ireland in terms of culture, religion, political participation, land? What was this process really? (laughs)
0: that's a big big question um and uh, (laughs) yes (laughs) and i'll try to answer it as succinctly as i possibly can but i think um the to bear in mind that what we're seeing happening in ireland it's like you have waves of imperialism sometimes the emphasis is on just military conquest sometimes the emphasis is on what we would today call cultural imperialism or um, uh, Anglicization. Uh, sometimes it's on converting the Irish Catholics to Protestantism. Uh, and sometimes these various sort of strands come together. Um, but it, it, again, with, at the risk of o- oversimplifying it. Um, up until uh, 1603 um, and the accession of, of James VI and First. Ireland had never been fully conquered militarily. So Ireland always represented a uh, a security threat to Britain. And we saw that particularly, you know, 1588, the Spanish Armada, uh, uh, you know, those, the Habsburgs. I mean, foreign princes were always very keen to use Ireland as a backdoor to attack and, and try and win England. Um With the military conquest of Ireland completed in 1603, all of a sudden, the uh, British crown, um, uh, as as King James uh, of Scotland uh, liked to think of himself as a British monarch, it was about, well, how can Ireland now become a resource uh, uh, for the better enrichment of England? And how uh, can we use Irish land um, and labour to? if you want to become part of an english imperial uh, venture and i'll say something about land because land is terribly important and then i'll say something about about labor because basically over the course of the um long 17th century about 8 million irish i mean 8 million acres of irish land is expropriated and if you want reassigned Uh, to people who are deemed to be loyal to the crown. The vast majority, of course, are Protestants, not all of them. Um, We also see how um, a merchant oligarchy based in London over time uses this Irish land to fuel their own imperial ventures, uh, not just in the Atlantic world, but 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 uh, on the world stage, so Irish land is hugely important um, uh, 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 at many 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 levels, and of course that in, uh, that brought with it people. So uh, you know probably the guts of three hundred thousand people of of English Scottish and Welsh extraction had moved to Ireland certainly by the early decades of, of the eighteenth century um it, it was It was about three hundred thousand people were uh, of um english uh, irish or uh, English Welsh or Scottish descent living in Ireland so we see this huge migration to Ireland uh, of colonists who are charged now as they're part of this imperial uh, venture. It has huge implications for the Irish indigenous population because what happens is these people have lost their lands, their religion is uh, being. You know, threatened because, of course, the, the crown is trying to convert them to uh, Protestantism. Um, and uh, they feel, quite rightly, very aggrieved. So you have a situation where conflict is inevitable. And of course, resistance uh, occurs. It takes many different um, shapes and forms. But we see a, a number of major rebellions. Uh, one would be in the 1590s, Uh, It's a war called the Nine Years' War and this is where we see Hugh O'Neill is one of the great leaders of the uh, um, Irish Catholic resistance to um, uh, uh, imperial rule. Um, We have then another major rebellion in the 1640s that um, for the first time Ireland is actually independent of uh, English rule since the 12th century. Now, that's only for a decade because, of course, then Oliver Cromwell comes in and we see another wave of expropriation and... um, really clamping down on Ireland. And then again, after 1588, there's another attempt uh, to to, to reclaim, uh, for the Catholics to reclaim what they thought was their own uh, land and rightful inheritance. So so it's it's a very messy process. It occurs over a long period of time. And as I say, we see this very intricate combination of military conquest and political subjugation. And Alongside that, we see this wider desire to convert the Irish to um, uh, 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 Protestantism, but also to make them English, to speak the English language, To wear English fashions, to cut, you know, including their hairstyles, you know, to cut their hair in uh, the English style, to educate their children uh, in English schools and universities, um, uh, to use the English legal system. um, And we see the introduction of English common law in Ireland uh, during uh, these uh, decades. But also, it goes further than this. It's about creating a subservient um, economy. So it's economic imperialism is very much part of this as well. Um, uh, Wanting the Irish to use money rather than barter. Um, We see very intensive urbanization occurring in Ireland uh, during especially the early 17th century. Um, And along with the Creation of towns, we see uh, the establishment of markets and fairs. In other words, it's about creating an anglicised economic order in Ireland. And the reason you want to do that is that you want to make the Irish economy um, work for England. And for uh, by the 1660s, England has effectively created a subservient economy in uh, uh, Ireland. Um, and Ireland is um, the place that then provisions, if you want, the uh, English colonies, especially uh, uh, in the Atlantic. So all of these processes take place over literally, you know, hundred. well, over a period of about 120, 150 years. Um, and it sort of fits and starts. So, um, And we'll see emphasis on reform, and then we'll see emphasis on uh, expropriation. So it, 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 it's, it's very important to take that longer view. But I would say by the mid-18th century, you know, what you have in Ireland is effectively a completely subservient uh, uh, economy. Dublin goes on to become the second city of empire. But the truth is that the the regions across Munster and especially cities like Cork are uh, uh, provisioning um, the English empire, as I say, in the Atlantic world uh, and later in Asia. So that's a very broad answer to to your question uh, miranda um but it's it's one of these things that it, it's it's um it, it's it's and I, I even now i'm oversimplifying it it's it's a complicated story
1: <laughs> no it's complicated but having the overview is helpful and of course it's obviously worth flagging to listeners explicitly that the book has loads more detail of course so if you <laughs> want it If listeners want any more detail on any of these things, and really they should want more detail on all of it because it's fascinating, um, we're doing sort of a highlights version of it um, in this capacity. But that was a very helpful um, overview to understand that the anglicization process isn't, as you said, kind of one moment or one aspect. It's really across every possible part of life even the way as you talked about mindset um people you know everything about kind of someone's life was impacted by this um and so I'd love to ask you about kind of a in some ways a very personal aspect but one that I think has some much broader implications which is about intermarriage Mm. um given the emphasis on changing kind of everything possible about Ireland and down to individual people, individual lives, even inside people's minds. What can we learn about empire if we look at it specifically around the topic of intermarriage? Well, uh, I I mean, for me, one of the most
0: important things about Brian Friel's play is it begins with the marriage of Hugh O'Neill, this great Gaelic Catholic lord, to a much younger uh, uh, daughter of a planter, of a Protestant planter, a woman called Mabel Bagnall. So here we have, um, from the very outset, um, uh, the playwright really challenging us uh, uh, about these issues around identity and what Irishness means, what. uh, Englishness means. And of course, intermarriage in this period amongst the elite is really quite common. Um, But I think it's also uh, far more common than people wanted to acknowledge as we go down the social hierarchy. The very fact that Oliver Cromwell has to issue instructions telling his troops not to marry local Catholic uh, women is an indication that it was happening Miranda. So the mm-hmm. first thing to mm-hmm. note is that intermarriage is happening I, and I think much more extensively than we've given uh, credit for. Well what does that mean? Well it means that at a very human level within communities you're seeing um, a, a level of integration between uh, ethnic um, uh, groups and between uh, religious uh, uh, communities. Um, there's always a struggle about how the children are going to be brought up obviously the protestants hope that protestant women will bring the children up as protestants even if they've married a catholic and the catholics are hoping uh, vice versa and it, it it depends where you look but you find examples of both things uh, happening so in other words sometimes the most protestant families within three generations are the most zealous catholics and and vice versa Um, That is a story that has just not really been told in an Irish context, uh, because we're so focused on sort of the colonised and the coloniser. We don't want to look at the, if you want, the nitty gritty and sometimes quite messy story that subjects like intermarriage uh, uh, bring to the fore. I think the other thing um, I'm very keen to explore, and obviously there's a whole chapter devoted to this in in making empire. But I'm very interested as well is when we look at the uh, when we uh, look at empire through the prism of gender and women. Well, what does that look like? And this is where I've been very inspired by the work of historians like Philippa Levine and uh, Margot Finn, who um, uh, uh, have really challenged this idea that empire is a masculine space. Um, And wherever I can, I am looking at how colonial women, in other words, those women who came as colonists to Ireland, uh, the operation of their daily lives, including the extent to which they intermarried uh, with with Catholics. I'm very interested in seeing how uh, uh, Catholic Irish women responded to colonialism because many um, are regarded as being the ones who are the great protectors of uh, Irish culture, of uh, the Irish religion, of of Catholicism. So I think when you start to look at all of these things through the prism of gender and women, actually, we get a much more, I think, interesting, uh, but a much more nuanced um, uh, story as well. But it also helps us to make sense of the very negative representations there are of Irish women. So we see particularly um, uh, English uh, writers, uh, including the great Edmund Spencer, that great Renaissance poet, um, and I have that great inadverted commas here, because Spencer, um, probably more than any other uh, English writer, denigrated Irish women wherever he could. He saw them as being particularly um, politically subversive and as dangerous um, because he recognised that they were the ones who ensured that children were brought up in the Catholic faith and that they uh, uh, were the guardians of, of language and, and, and culture. Um, and, um, you know, obviously w- w- these Negative writings. I'm sort of trying to turn them on their head uh, and say, "Well, was Spencer right?" You know, and 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 I think it it, co- it actually confers tremendous agency to these women. And let's remember, this is the 17th century, so um, women don't have a legal existence except through uh, their husbands or, or their fathers, uh, and so they're very much in the shadows. Um, but a uh, uh, work that I'm doing, and we might come back to it in terms of my next project, is is actually looking at these women and putting them centre stage. And how does that change the narrative? How does that change the picture? And and my book would suggest um, it changes it very radically. Uh, and it's a far more interesting story as a result.
1: Mm, no, definitely. Adding nuance to history, I think, always gives us, maybe always gives us a more complicated picture, but almost certainly always gives us a more interesting one as well. So thank you for talking us through that lens. I'd like to ask you about um, another group of people in Empire that also had some agency. Um, and these, they're literally called agents of empire in some cases. What does looking at them tell us about kind of the on the ground aspects of imperialism and Ireland's role in England's empire?
0: Well, I was extremely interested in looking at people who. I, I use that word collaborate, um, but in sort of inverted commas. Who who are working with um, the crown um, to effectively imp- pursue an imperial agenda uh, uh, in Ireland, um, and uh, these are invariably people of high status, usually members of the titled um, peerage or titled elite, um, and they're very clever at how. Yeah. Or actually, clever is the wrong word. They're they they're they're very pragmatic in how they work with the king as his, as you know his loyal servants and subjects, uh, but as they do so, they also are protecting their own estates, their own followers. So in other words, they may be imperial agents, uh, but they're using, they're sort of almost turning empire on its head because by playing the game, they're also protecting their own. So I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, in looking at their stories. So they tend to be the ones who are in Ireland uh, itself, usually the Catholics. The Protestant agents of empire are much more overtly men on the make uh, who are land grabbers, uh, who are there to make their fortunes in Ireland, the best example is a man called the Earl of Cork, who basically arrives in Ireland as a penniless um, uh, uh, opportunist, uh, and uh, within three, gen- three decades is, you know, he dies the richest man, not just in Ireland but but these islands. So, so you know, he would be a really good example of um, uh, somebody who who uses these imperial opportunities uh, uh, to advance himself and and his lineage. They're the ones who stay in Ireland. I'm also extremely interested in the men and uh, it it mostly is men, although a significant number of women do um, uh, migrate uh, across empire. We go back to them, but the men who then also use opportunities uh, for their own enrichment um, on the back of not just the British slash English empire, but also the empires of the other European uh, powers. Um, And they go out um, as merchants primarily. But very quickly, we see the Irish becoming very engaged in um, tobacco, uh, uh, sugar, um, uh, slavery. Uh, They're very, very effective merchants. They're very effective plantation overseers and sometimes plantation owners. Um, And uh, they do extremely well, uh, not just, as I say, in the English Empire, but the empires of all of the early modern European powers. And it's really the 1610s and 20s. We see the first, you know, Irish imperialists or these agents of empire uh, operating in the Amazon, where they are uh, selling timber uh, and tobacco, and they actually you know, work in collaboration uh, uh, with the English, but also the Dutch uh, uh, and the Portuguese. And so so the Irish are trans-imperial. They're really good at piggybacking on the empires of uh, others. And um, I, I do think, though, it's very important to remember that the vast majority of people who are engaged um, uh, in empire don 't don 't do so on on a voluntary basis and we 'll come back and, and and talk about them but in addition to those merchants um, there are two other areas where we see Irish again, predominantly men, uh, very active. Um, One area is as mercenaries, as soldiers, Um, and many of them uh, will serve not just in the navies and the armies of uh, the English, but particularly of Spain and France. And they'll use then these uh, military networks to uh, develop mercantile ones. And then the final sort of big area where we see uh, large numbers of uh, uh, Irish both Protestants in the English Empire and Catholics in the Spanish um, and French empires, is as clergy, as missionaries. Um, And they participate very actively in the great spiritual empires, whether it's the Franciscans, the Jesuits, uh, or the Anglican um, uh, empire in the Atlantic. So when we think about agents of empire, we need to think about it within Ireland and then across if you want the globe um and uh looking at it through the lens as i say of of missionaries um it's god's gains and godly god's gains and godliness um uh uh, gods obviously the missionaries uh, uh, gains the merchants and guns um are our soldiers
1: Mm. no that that makes sense as a way of thinking about this um To narrow down the world into something perhaps slightly more manageable to ask you about um, in this instance, can we talk about Tangier um, and why it makes an interesting case study to kind of look at this a little bit further? And especially, I just find it so curious to imagine these different people there with different goals. And if someone says, you know, where are you from? What are you part of? What does it mean at this point to claim Irishness or claim Englishness. Um, how how can we maybe investigate that by looking at Tangier?
0: Well, Tangier um, came to um, Charles II as part of his diary when Charles II married the Portuguese princess Catherine of Braganza. So, as part of her diary, she wrote Tangier and Bombay. Uh, anyway, uh, Tangier effectively became an Irish colony because um, it was largely administered and um, most of the soldiers in Tangier uh, were Irish. And it's not that they were just Irish. They were mostly Irish Catholics. Um, And um, the fact that they were able to use the Irish language as a secret language is something uh, that was commented upon. Uh, but this was controversial that Charles II had opted to send so many Irish Catholics to Kangier because, of course, many of his English um, uh, subjects uh, would have seen the Irish as being disloyal. Um, and uh, the fact that they were Catholic um, added to this Sense that you couldn't trust the barbarous Irish, uh, uh, so it, it became a very interesting place where we see Englishness, Irishness uh, being played out, and it is Englishness and Irishness. It's not Britishness. Uh, Britishness is is very much a constructed identity in this period, uh, and the one thing that you never see uh, people uh, 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 talking about is being uh, uh, so. They'll always refer to themselves as as Irish. Or English, but they'll never describe themselves uh, as being British. So, uh, but Tangier is, is, as I say, it's just this interesting little case study uh, where we, we see these issues around identity in in a very clear cut way. We do see it in other parts, uh, especially the Atlantic, but um, it, it, it tends to be less clear cut than it, than it
1: is in Tangier. Mm, no, making it a very good place to investigate. One of the main themes of the book, and I think something very much present in some of the ways that empires remembered uh, regarding Ireland is the idea of Ireland as England's longest colony and therefore as something of a laboratory, as a starting point, as a testing ground for English empire that maybe then gets exported more broadly. So obviously this again is another big question that I'm throwing at you but maybe you could take us through one or two ways or an overview of how Ireland... Was a laboratory in this sense?
0: Yes, um, and it is a big uh, uh, area. Um, And I think, just at that high level, what we could, what I do argue, is that Ireland is a laboratory where ideas and policy are formulated, um, that are then, if you want, rolled out elsewhere across the English empire. But Ireland is also a place where people go to learn the business of empire. um, And um, they can then take those learnings to them, to the Atlantic world or or later to India and later again to, to Africa. So this notion of Ireland being a laboratory isn't Just in the early modern period, that continues the whole way through until the 20th century. But maybe just to give you one sort of specific example, and it really relates um, to ideology, because what we see being developed in Ireland is an ideology of otherness. So we see a development of an ideology of ethnocentricity. Now, by the 19th century, it would be called racism. But that racism is not a concept that is uh, applies uh, uh, in the 17th century. Rather, it's um, about cultural superiority. And this goes back to writers like Edmund Spencer, who has in turn been influenced by a medieval writer, a man called Géraldus Cambrances, uh, who was writing in the 12th century. And he said, you know, the Irish are uncivil, they're barbarous, they're cannibals. Um, And Spencer picks up this very negative portrayal of the Irish. And of course, then their Catholicism is compounding their barbarity, their incivility, uh, their uh, savageness. And Spencer writes a very important tract called The State of the View of Ireland, And that becomes a foundational text then for the British Empire right through into the 19th century where this discussion then has morphed into one of, of, of racism. Um, but uh, uh, all of those early ideas are really worked out in an Irish context, uh, which it's about anti-Catholicism, but it's more than that. It's about the Irish as a race uh, uh, being uh, second-class citizens, uh, the English being somehow uh, superior uh, to the Irish, so I think that's a really you know interesting example of how you know that's played out uh, in Ireland, and then as I say, exported um, uh, around the British Empire uh, and. But it wouldn't be the only one. We've other examples Mm. of uh, legal imperialism. In other words, uh, and and Jennifer Wells has done fabulous work on this. She's a historian at George Washington University, whose own book on um, Ireland and the Atlantic world is is coming out, if it's not already out, where she looks at how laws that were formulated in Ireland were then later re. Uh, if you want, repurposed uh, in other parts of uh, uh, the English Empire, especially um, uh, in in the Caribbean, it laws against if you want indigenous native Irish are repurposed uh, and used against uh, slaves. So, so I think you know there's a lot of examples uh, here, um, and uh, architecture would be a, a, another one. Um, oh, and, and I suppose the final thing, just to simply flag, flag which, and again, it's all developed in the book is mapping, because Ireland maps are tools of empire and Ireland is probably the most extensively mapped uh, place in the early modern world. I would stick my neck out here. Um, and those techniques for mapping and for knowledge gathering Um, and counting resources, uh, uh, human and and natural, that is really fine-tuned in Ireland, uh, largely under a man called Sir William Petty, who is, of course, the father of political um, uh, um, economy. Um, And uh, then it's applied uh, very much around uh, uh, the Atlantic world uh, and then later uh, uh, in in India uh, as well. So in so many ways, we see Ireland being that laboratory for empire, as I think, not just in the early modern period, but right through uh, into to, to the twentieth century,
1: mm. and it's in fact one of those um, continuities and exports that I'd love to ask you about. Kind of, in some ways, as a follow up to that very helpful answer, um, but I guess my question now is less about the ways in which the English and then British state used um, Ireland and then exported it as. Sort of something that came out of Ireland that maybe the government was less happy about, um, but nevertheless had consequences beyond um, Ireland, which is specifically Irish resistance to empire and the consequences it had for India.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just India. Actually, the American Civil War was very influenced by what had happened in uh, uh, Ireland earlier. So uh, in addition, if you want to being servants of uh, uh, empire, the Irish are subversives within empire. Um, uh, But if we look particularly at the example of India, the Irish first are engaged in the um, East India Company uh, from the uh, 1670s. The founding father of Bombay is a man called Gerald Anger, uh, who would be Ireland's first neighbour. So they've got a very long history uh, of engaging, uh, as if you want, servants of empire, first the East India Company and then the Raj, Uh, by the 1890s, something like two thirds of the white uh, troops in India are Irish. And of the uh, eight provinces in India and Burma, seven of them are ruled by Irishmen. And um, uh, Lord Dufferin uh, would be uh, the viceroy at that point. So so the Irish are all over um, uh, the uh, British Empire in in India, but they also are the ones who are challenging uh, British rule uh, in India. And we see this really from the 1890s, and they're challenging it as uh, members of the raj or as of the east india company um uh, but they're also doing it in other ways we see the irish constitutional nationalists, the home rulers, effectively making common cause with the Indian um, uh, Home Rule uh, uh, League and especially a woman called Annie Besant who is herself of Irish extraction, uh, who goes on to be the first president of the um, uh, Home Rule League uh, in uh, uh, India. She and her colleagues are working very, very closely uh, with their counterparts um, uh, in Ireland. We see a lot of links between the cultural nationalists. So W.B. Yeats and uh, Rabindra Tagore, who was, of course, the first Asian to win a Nobel Prize for uh, literature. Well, uh, he and Yeats were hugely um, influenced by uh, each other and um, worked very closely to create, if you want, a common cause uh, for uh, uh, the nationalist movements. And then um, uh, Indian Republican nationalists uh, followed the Irish Republican cause. Uh, They watched very closely what was happening uh, in 1916, which, of course, was the beginning of um, the uh, process that triggered uh, the ultimate uh, independence of Ireland uh, from Britain. Um, And they worked very, very closely uh, with figures like, um, well, they admired hugely uh, Patrick uh, Pearce, Michael Collins, uh, and worked very closely with Eamon de Valera, who would have been one of the founding fathers of modern Ireland. Uh, You know, I think the Irish taught the Indians their ABC of freedom fighting and and are recognised as such, and especially in, in Bengal, you see a copycat uh, rising uh, uh, at uh, Chittagong. That it's 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 1931, but it's an exact copy of what has happened in Ireland in in 1916. And you see these Bengali nationalists are really drawing inspiration from what the Irish uh, republican nationalists uh, are are doing. Uh, so. You, you know, it's it's again, it's a it's a complicated story, but I, I think that on many occasions, Ireland, uh, and it's not just in an Indian context, uh, uh, Irish resistance to empire, especially in the 20th century, uh, uh, did inspire other nationalist movements, not just across the British Empire, but across uh, the other European empires as well.
1: Hmm. No, absolutely fascinating to think about. Um, how all those pieces interact uh, within empire, but also against it. Mm. Bringing us right all the way back to the present, if you don't mind, I know we're skipping over loads of things, but again, uh, the book has more detail, I promise. Um, How has early modern empire, this period in particular, been remembered in Ireland?
0: You know, it's a really good question, uh, Miranda, because I think people have a very selective memory uh, uh, of it, and it depends on your uh, perspective. But some of the big events that occurred in this period are very important in shaping in what we would call a Protestant uh, national. Uh, uh, pro- uh, sorry. A number of events are very important in shaping a Protestant loyalist agenda. And I mean events like the rebellion of 1641, when um, uh, the Catholics rose up and attacked um, many of the Protestant colonists. That became a very important uh, event in um, sort of across the centuries, Uh, Protestants would, would use that Evidence as evidence of treachery. You can never trust the perfidious Irish Catholics, and would have used it to whip up anti-Catholic hysteria. As I say, from the 1640s right through until very, very recently. So I think that that's you know 1641 is is, is a good example. Obviously, 1690 and the Battle of the Boyne, um, another very, very uh, uh, good example of something that is still very much part of the DNA. Of the Loyalist um, uh, community, uh, the Orangemen still march on the 12th of July. The Siege of Derry would be something that is uh, commemorated every year, or the relief of the, the, the Siege of Derry, that's uh, uh, taking us to the conflict of, of the 1690s as well. So, all of these are very key moments that have profoundly shaped um, identity in modern Ireland. And then for the Catholics, you've got Anything to do with Oliver Cromwell, you know, Oliver Cromwell got an amazing archive called the Folklore Archive, which is housed uh, uh, in UCD. And basically that folklore archive, the most mentioned historic figure is Daniel O'Connell. And after Daniel O'Connell, it's Oliver Cromwell. And my colleague, um, Sarah Covington, has written an amazing book about the social memory of Oliver Cromwell. So it's, it's very interesting to see how um, Cromwell is remembered uh, even in Ireland today, the other thing I would just make a point of, though, is is because the plantations and um, the fact that um, Ireland, you know, was very much part of the British Empire up until 100 years ago. Um, I also think that, you know, this selective memory of it, it uh, and and we're not willing to come to terms with it in its totality. And, and I think that's something that I'm hoping that the book will do that will allow us to um, say, well, you know why are these particular events so important in shaping identity across time? Um, because I think as Ireland moves to hopefully uh, having a future where we can continue to live peacefully on the island, we have to actually think about, well, what did empire mean for us as a people? How has it shaped us? Because it's only by having these sort of rather difficult conversations and bowing to the past without being bound by it that we'll ever sort of have a shared future. And for me, that's one of the most important things about talking about empire. Um, uh, but as I say, always doing so in an empirically grounded way and and, and in, a, in a respectful one, because the last thing I would want is to stir up a debate about empire that wasn't actually constructive or helping us to actually negotiate treacherous waters um, and, um, Hopefully um, we we will see a a, a healthy debate. So far it has been healthy. You'll get craziness on on social media and there's obviously toxicity out there about many of these issues. Uh, The one thing I hate to see is what we see with the extreme white supremacists in the United States who are using instances of Irish indentured service to, if you want, claim that, you know, the white supremacists were the first white slaves, you know, there's a fundamental difference between black chattel slavery and uh, uh, indentured service. So, you know, history is a very dangerous weapon in the wrong hands. So it's it's really important that we uh, call out uh, people who are trying to uh, use it inappropriately and destructively um, and to support uh, initiatives and research that is actually uh, based on fact.
1: Well, in fact, that's what I'd love to ask you about, because that's clearly something that you're doing not just with this book, but you hinted at a next project as well. So could we finish off with maybe a little preview of what you might be working on next? Oh, I'd love
0: to, Miranda, and hopefully I can come back and talk about it. So I was very fortunate to receive... uh, An advanced grant from the European Research Council to um, uh, as a five year project to work on the lived experiences of uh, women in early modern Ireland. So I've been able to put together a fabulous team of historians and computer scientists um, and uh, literary scholars. So it's very a very interdisciplinary uh, team to say, well, now these women have been hiding in plain sight, uh, we've paid no attention to them whatsoever. Um, uh, let's now put their stories and their lived experiences at the heart of um, uh, uh, Irish history. Um, but as we do that, I'm so keen to look comparatively um, across uh, the early modern imperial world, because I think um, the experiences of women colonising uh, Ireland and those colonising, for example, Portuguese Brazil or um, as New Spain, you know, what do these uh, women enjoy you know what commonalities are there Obviously, there are differences as well the other thing I'm I'm trying to do with this project I look at women during times of peace and there we're looking at their labor how they deploy their labor we're looking at their their relationship with their land within their communities their networks at their families but I'm also looking at them during times of war and obviously the 1590s the 1640s and then again um, at the end of the 17th century. And there uh, we're finding, you know, some really harrowing material of how women experienced violence, um, ex- particularly sexual violence, um, some of it very extreme indeed, but also then how they negotiated um, wartime as refugees uh, particularly uh, uh, and demonstrated a, a great agency as, as well. So um, this project is, is just beginning. We're very fortunate to have a lot of digital a lot of historic data available in digital format um my other colleague peter crooks is is leading an amazing project called um it's called the virtual treasury it's basically aiming to reconstitute an archive that was destroyed 100 years ago um uh, it's called the, the, uh, so 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 it means that for the first time we've got this amazing wealth of 17th century digital material um that you know i think will be extremely important as we retell this story of um, the lives of of ordinary women uh, 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 in Ireland and we combine that material with um, records like the 1641 depositions which I would have um, uh, been a PI in in helping to digitise but also this amazing cartographic material that I mentioned earlier Ireland's the most mapped country in the early modern world so by bringing all of this together it'll give us as I say hopefully a, a very fresh very new historical um uh, story uh and i'm getting very tired here miranda so you're just going to have to <laughs> no, it's, it's... edit this in whatever way you can i think uh, my
1: brain is starting to shut down <laughs> well no let, let's let's just finish off um Thank you for telling us about that fabulous, fascinating new project. Um, And of course, while you and your team are working on it, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Making Empire, Ireland, Imperialism and the Early Modern World, published by Oxford University Press. Jane, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.